We're in chapter 10 now. It's a rather short chapter, only 11 verses, and it doesn't cover a lot of ground, so we're going to preach the passage this morning, but in addition, we're going to do something I've been wanting to do uh, since we began, and that is look at some Old Testament uh, scripture and correlate them with the book of Revelation. It would be nice, actually, uh, if we could cover all of prophecy when we went to Revelation and look at all the prophetic passages they're in the Old Testament, but it would, it would take years to do that. So, um, maybe uh, this might be a little stimulus for you this morning when we look at some passages in Joel and Zechariah to uh, provoke a little independent study along those lines. But uh, we are, uh, for the visitors in particular, we're going to the book of Revelation. We started in chapter 1, verse 1, several months ago. <clears throat> and uh, we've made it up now to chapter 10. And uh, every time we look in this book, I want to remind us, we'll kind of stand back and, and kind of get our uh, context, our perspective on this book. It's, uh, in many ways, it's a very difficult book because there is uh, much symbolism in it, although not so much symbolism that we can't understand anything. Uh, as I said before, we have to be careful when we interpret some of the passages uh, when God uses simile and metaphor, the words like and as, it's okay to say, well, you know, then it's not really what it says, but it's like what it says. But then other times he doesn't say that, and so we need to take God literally. Uh, it's difficult also in its, in its flow in that it's not completely chronological. And uh, we're about to go into uh, what are called one of the parentheses in the book of Revelation. Uh, in fact, let me just uh, summarize... So you can kind of come up to speed with where we are, particularly visitors. Chapter 1 began with a vision of the Lord Jesus himself. Good place to start, huh? Don't you think? Remember the title of the book. Not Revelations. Revelation. And it's a revelation in particular. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, we need to keep remembering this. We're living in a very unusual time right now. When is the last time you saw headlines uh, about the uh, acts of God, or the latest thing that God has done? Can you remember everyone ever sees one? See, we're living in an age, you might call it the silence of God. It's not that God is not here, or that he's not actively involved in his creation. We've talked about that. Right now, as we're here, he is sustaining all of his creation. He didn't just create it and make laws and it went off spinning on its own. He sustains everything and everyone. The Bible says that very plainly, moment by moment, including you. But beyond that, right now, uh, we don't hear voices from heaven. Uh, we don't see the kind of things that took place during the time of Moses or even during the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the silence of God. But there is coming a time when he will no longer remain silent. And this unusual period we're going through, where God permits people to deny his existence, to abuse his daily blessings, uh, literally to hate God in many cases, he's going to bring that to an end and he's going to speak. 
in that period, which I believe is going to start very, very soon, where God is going to, so to speak, uh, open the door and uh, make himself known visibly again. Uh, it's called the Day of the Lord in the Bible, and it's his day. And it begins with the rapture, when God is going to take to himself true believers. I think there are many in this room who will not be here for much longer. And I don't mean that you're going to get old and die. I think the Lord Jesus is going to come very soon and remove the true believers from the earth. And when he does that, the day of the Lord will begin. That will be the first uh, evident, real, really apparent act of God, if you will, in the affairs of men again. He's going to start it there. And then we'll begin, really the earth is going to be winding down because there are going to be seven years left of the history of the earth as we know it uh, called the tribulation. And we've been reading about that in the book of Revelation. The great judgments that will come during those seven years, particularly in the last half. And then uh, finally, the Lord Jesus will, will return visibly. Every eye will see him and he will rule as he has promised since thousands of years ago through the prophets. Oh, how... I yearn to finally see the Lord Jesus Christ take his rightful place. What a day that will be. And he will rule over the earth rightfully. So chapter 1 really began with, with what it should be. A, a, a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ um, exalted in heaven. Uh, chapters 2 and 3 were letters to churches. But really, in a sense, it's a continuation of the revelation of the Lord. Because throughout those letters, remember... Uh, the Lord Jesus spoke and described himself in a certain way. You remember that? Yes? No? Blank stares? You know, thus says he who has the seven stars in his hand, you know, who eyes, whose eyes are like a flame of fire. Remember that? He described himself in these cases. He spoke to the churches. And then four and five were pictures of worship in heaven. I want to stress this because here we were, five chapters in the book of Revelation, and we haven't seen one judgment yet. You see, God is reminding us that he is on the throne. And the important thing there is the centrality of God, the centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact that in spite of what's going to be happening on earth and the terrible catastrophes and, and in, in the prophets it says that the earth is going to reel to and fro like a drunken man. There's not going to be any unrest in heaven. God is going to be on the throne. It's put beautifully in Psalm 2. Where God puts it this way, he says, Why do the nations rage and imagine a vain thing? You know, he says, they get together and, and they plot. They say, we, we, will, we will tear his chains asunder. We're going we're gonna to break free of God. And then it says, he who sits in, in the heavens laughs. Stre stressing the word, he who sits in the heavens, you see. God is sovereign. He is on the throne. And it's important that we have these scenes of Worship and uh, serenity, in a sense, really. Peace in heaven. While, pardon the expression, literal hell is breaking loose on the earth below. I like the uh, verse we sang earlier in that hymn. It's a beautiful picture. I don't know if you noticed the words. It said, shut in with thee far, far above the restless world that wars below. Did you catch that? Isn't that a great picture? And in a sense, if you know Jesus Christ, you know what that means, don't you? You know, uh, we can go through trials, we can go through difficulties in this life, a turmoil can be all around us, and yet, because we know the Lord Jesus Christ, we know we're saved, we know our sins are forgiven, we know that no matter what happens, 
we're going to be with Him forever? It's, it's kind of like being shut in with Him, you know, above all of the turmoil and everything around us. Insulated in a way. Isn't that great? So, then we get to chapter 6, and then uh, the judgments began, and you remember they were symbolized by uh, a particular object. You remember what they were? Pay attention now, I'm up here talking. Okay, do you remember what the first judgments were symbolized by? Very good, yes. Okay, yeah, six seals. And uh, after chapter 6, we had our first parenthesis. It was chapter 7 where God talked about the sealing of the 144,000. Then we picked up in chapters 8 and 9, and we've seen that the last two weeks. The what? Judgments. Trumpets. That's right. And now in chapter 10, we're beginning um, the longest parenthesis, if you will, in the uh, book of Revelation. It's six chapters long, 10 through 15. It's called a parenthesis because it's a break from the sequential Seals, one, two, three, four, five, six, and then seven, and then the trumpets. There's a break from the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. Where he talks about events, it's not clear where some of them take place. Others seem to take place kind of throughout the whole tribulation. And this, this uh, chapter we're looking at here really doesn't talk about events on the earth at all, or in heaven, uh, in the way we saw them in chapters four and five. Really, it's a picture of God's prophet, God's man, and what, really what it's like to be a prophet of God. We're going to look at that. Uh, when we get to it. Then, uh, quickly, chapter 16 will be the seven bowls. Uh, 17 through 18 is another parenthesis. It's the judgment on Babylon the Great. We'll talk about that when we get, get there. Then 19 picks up the narrative again right after the final judgments. Uh, it talks about Armageddon, the Lord Jesus' visible return. Chapter 20 describes the millennium and the great white throne judgment, which follows uh, his millennial reign. And then finally, the last two chapters take us for the rest of whatever. They talk about what's called the eternal state in theology. When there'll be no more sin, no more sorrow, no more crying. It says God will wipe away every tear. But uh, as I was saying, uh, when we're looking at this, we want to keep in mind when we read these incredible events, last time, if you remember, we finished with the sixth trumpet, and we read those words, and there's no way we can really understand the full impact of what they said. A third of, of uh, mankind is going to be killed. A third of the people of the earth will die. That's incredible. One act of judgment. And the silence of God, you see, will have stopped. God's going to finally speak out. We, we've said before, God sustains his creation. He gives to all life and breath. And most people take advantage of that. They use that life and breath for things that don't please God. And he's going to finally put a stop to it. We live right now in an age of four primary isms. Evolutionism, atheism, humanism, and materialism. And right now, uh, they've just excluded God from his own creation, really. Evolutionism, imagine that. It's denied the creation of God. Atheism denies the existence of God. Humanism takes God off the throne and puts man there. And materialism denies the reality of, 
spiritual things, which the Bible clearly teaches are what's eternal and what's re what really matters. Okay, let's look at chapter 10 now. And uh, it's a very, very short chapter, as I said. It's not going to take long to look at it. And then we're going to kind of spring from there to uh, the Old Testament and look at some parallel passages to the things we've been seeing. Chapter 10, verse 1. And I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. It's an incredible scene. We read the words here, but we just, we really had to have been there, I think, to really appreciate it. Any, anybody ever been to uh, the San Francisco Zoo when they feed the lions? You ever done that before? Yeah. Have you been in there when they've actually roared? It's, it's awesome, isn't it? I mean, your, your, your whole body kind of shakes when they get going. They set up a reverberation and you realize how vulnerable and small you are. And so you can kind of get a sense of what he means here. When, when this angel uh, speaks, he says it's like a, the roaring of a lion. And then accompanying that is, are these thunders. You know how loud thunder can get. What an awesome scene this must have been. Now, there is a lot of speculation on the significance of these things. Why is he straddling earth and sea? Why does, why does he have this little book? We're going to talk about that toward the end. Uh, people speculate about who the angel is. Uh, some of the commentators think it's the Lord Jesus. I really I don't agree with that. He's simply another mighty angel. The Lord Jesus would not be described as another mighty angel. But he's a, he's a pretty significant guy. And uh, when he speaks, he says something. What I, what I mean is, John hears it, but we don't. Because look at verse 4. Now, when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write. John has been used to, up to this point, he sees something, he hears something, he puts it down in writing. But then, I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. And if you're like me, when I read that, my mind just starts going, Wow, I wonder what he said. You know, But we can speculate and we can imagine all we want, but we don't know because John was commanded not to write it down. And so you say, well, well, why did God do that then? Well, John was the only one that heard them, so clearly it was for John's benefit. And uh, I don't know if it would have been further revelation. Uh, it could have been encouragement for him. It could have been an explanation of some of the things he's, he's seen. But we just don't know. It was for John's ears only. And so we'll have to leave it at that. They're not written down. Then uh, the angel, verse 5, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, lifted up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. Just a... Passing observation, again like chapter 5, notice there are no atheists in heaven, no evolutionists in heaven. Everybody in heaven is a creationist. Isn't that incredible? And they're praising God for it. And here this mighty angel swears by literally God's creation that there should be delay no longer. Well, you say, well, what delay? Well, there's an anxiety in heaven and there really should be among our hearts too as believers 
for the Lord Jesus to take his rightful place. And we're going to see that uh, a little later in this book where they just shout out when, it, when the time gets so close. Hallelujah. At last the time has come. And so that's what he means, delay no longer. And so he, he says in verse 7, But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished, as he declared to his servants, the prophet. Now, uh, we said at the beginning that it appears from the book of Revelation that you have six seals, and then within the seventh seal is contained the seven trumpets. And then it appears that after the six trumpets, within the seventh trumpet is contained, that is, take place within a very short span of time, the seven bowls. Uh, look ahead, for example, at uh, verse 15 of chapter 11. This is the shout of triumph that I alluded to. The seventh angel will sound. See that in verse 15, chapter 11? And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Praise God. Now we saw here that this mighty angel said that when the, the last trumpet sounds, that's going to be it. But now we know that just a few chapters later, there's going to be seven bowls yet. And yet he's speaking as if the Lord Jesus is reigning now. So it appears that the, the seven bowls are just going to go bang, 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 bang. Just within a very short space of time. And in fact, it really fits with the picture of the book of Revelation and what God is accomplishing here. You know what God is doing, among many other things, revealing himself for one thing. You know one of the things he's doing? He is, as he's stepping up the judgments, he is extracting, if you will, the last remaining people who are going to, to believe until there's none left. And then that's it. Once he's gotten them all out, then that's the end of the history of planet Earth as we know it, and then the millennial reign will begin. And there's a, a very graphic picture of that in a description of the Lord Jesus. Later on in chapter 19, he is described as the one, you should be familiar with this phrase, who treads out the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. Have you heard that? Now think about that. The Lord Jesus is described as someone, you know, they, they pull up their skirts and they, they stomp the grapes. You, you've heard of this, right? And maybe even seen it. It says, he treads out, but this is not a wine press with grapes in it. He treads out the wine press of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And just as when someone treads out a, a wine press, when they, when they start... Boy, the, the, the uh, juice is just flowing out. You know, you got it filled up maybe, I don't know how deep they fill it, maybe like that. And you go in there and start stomping, you got a lot of juice flowing out. And the person who's doing the work keeps stomping, and what happens to the flow as time goes on? Yeah, it, starts, it, it diminishes, right? Until finally, you're just, you're just stomping on grapes, grape, grape skins. There's no more juice. It's all gone. You see, it's, it's a picture of God as He brings judgment on the earth. It's like, stomping on the earth, so to speak, squeezing it until the last person who's going to repent, repents. And after that, you have nothing but hard hearts. Nothing but stony hearts. And he's done. And in fact, it's really remarkable to see it. 
I want you to look at just three passages with me. Chapter 6, verse 15. At the end of the three sets of judgments, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, God tells us about how the, the human heart is doing on planet Earth, how the people are responding. And you'll see a progression. You'll see that after the seals, there's maybe a little responsiveness on the part of the people on the Earth. There's certainly an acknowledgement of, of that God is doing it, and there's a fear. You're going to see, as we saw last week, after the trumpets, there seems to be, be a little bit more indifference. And by the time we get to the, the seven bowls, you're going to be shocked at what you see. He's down to the dregs. There, there is absolutely no responsiveness left in human hearts by that point. And it's a graphic picture of this wine press. Chapter 6, verse 15. This is after the, the, the uh, six seals, remember. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. At least, at least there's fear. Right? And said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? There's an acknowledgement that this is the hand of God. There's a fear. Now, I don't know how much of this actually came to repentance. But now, look, and we just saw this last week, it's a response after the uh, six trumpets. Chapter 9, we, this is where we ended up last week. Look at verse 20. But the re- Remember, a third, listen to this, a third of the people on the world have just died. Can you imagine that? Dead. And listen, but the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. You see that? Now, as we go through this, this progression, I think many of you would would agree with me. I've seen this in individual lives where God has tried to speak to someone and there's an initial uh, sensitivity to the things of God. And depending on how they respond, if there's a, a softness, if there's a responsiveness, then God will show them more. And God willing, that person will come to Christ and be saved. But I've seen many times where uh, a person has initially heard the word of God and there's been a softness, but instead of responding, they don't want to repent. You know, I don't want to bother with that right now. And so they harden their hearts. And... God keeps trying to speak to them and their hearts get harder and harder. And there seems to come a time in some people's lives to where their hearts get so hard that they can't hear the voice of God anymore. So I believe not only on a worldwide basis is this going to be true, where God is like going to squeeze out, you know, the last bit of juice, so to speak. You can see that in individual lives as well. There are some who just respond and, and, and uh, you know, yield fruit. And then many others who don't want to hear God. They harden their hearts. So let's look at the last seven uh, judgments, which is in chapter 16. And here is the response of man. And listen to this. 
And as, as I said, many people believe th- these incredible judgments take place in a very short amount of time. And yet, look at the response. Verse 9, chapter 16. And men were scorched with great heat, and listen, and they blasphemed the name of God. Can you imagine? Can you imagine blaspheming God after all the stuff that's taken place in the book of Revelation? You know, shaking your fist at God and cursing? Verse 11, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. People were physically hurting from the judgment of God. And they blasphemed God. And then finally, the last judgment comes. Verse 21, great hail from heaven fell upon men. Every hailstone about the weight of a talent. That's a big hailstone. And men blasphemed God. You see, the wine press is dry at this point. All the juice is out. It's all gone. No more fruit to be had. And it's right after that that the Lord Jesus is going to come and set up His reign on the earth. Take away all those that don't know Him. And my only question is for you, where do you stand? Are you ready? Is God speaking to you? Don't harden your heart like these people here. Listen to His voice. Okay, back to chapter 10 now. This mighty angel has been speaking to John. John wrote down uh, at least some of it. He was permitted to describe the angel, his, his straddling the earth and the sea and having this little book. Now comes an interesting um, experience for John. And when we read it, you're going you're to go, What? But we're going to correlate it with a passage in the Old Testament. It'll make a lot more sense to you. And, it, and when we think about it, we're going to get a little bit more into the heart of what it's like to be a prophet of God. Verse 8. And the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. And I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. Can you imagine going up to this angel and say, Give me that book? <laughs> But he did. He had the command of God, so he knew it was the right thing to do. But I I think I would have done that with fear and trembling. Give me the little book, he says. And he said to me, take and eat it. And it will make your stomach bitter. But it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And guess what? And it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Now, what in the world is that all about? Well, Ezekiel had the identical experience. We're going to look at it in a minute. But this is a good opportunity to to stand back and just see what it's like to be a prophet of God. I think often when we read the book of Revelation and all these incredible visions here, which Hollywood could never do justice to, uh, we get, I think we get the picture of John kind of sitting back in the third row of the movie house, you know, with his popcorn, and just kind of watching the screen or something. Right? No? Okay, well, that's good. Some people don't get that picture. This is, this is not uh, an acted-out play. This is a vision from God, and, and it was so real for John to experience these things. You, you remember in the beginning, when he saw the Lord Jesus Christ, he fell on his face. And he was so weak, he couldn't get up. You know what that's like? He is so fearful that he literally falls from, from weakness and fear. 
Can you imagine that? And we've read these words, these, these terrible things. All the grass being burned up, a third of the trees being burned up, a third of the uh, living creatures in the sea dying, one third of the earth's population dying, earlier a quarter of the earth's population in the seals. The locusts, we remember the locusts. On and on. Let me tell you, it's hard being a prophet. This was an emotional and literally physical experience for John to see these things, to experience these things. And it's one thing to have the Word of God given to one, as it was to John and Ezekiel and Daniel and Moses and everybody, all the other prophets. And when the, when the Word of God comes to them, it is sweet as honey. It's the Word of God. It's true. You've sensed that as a believer, right? Isn't the Word of God sweet like honey? You know, sweeter than honey in, in the honeycomb? And yet, when the prophets saw the kind of things that God was going to do, when John saw these visions, it was incredibly troubling to him. And that's putting it mildly. Daniel, in chapter 8, at one point, he got so sick, he was sick for days. Think about that. He had a vision from God, and it was so overwhelming to him that he literally was laid up sick for days. And I believe what God is, is, is showing John here, he's, he's, kind of, he's getting him ready for what else he has to do, first of all. He's reminding him of the experience of, of having directly the Word of God, these visions, these revelations of what God is going to do. The fact that it's the Word of God, it's sweet as honey, but the content, the things that it's talking about are difficult for a man to take in. It's bitter to the stomach. And if you understand the things that are going to be happening and that John actually saw these things, it was hard for him to take. You understand? It's not easy being a prophet. Jeremiah said it more eloquently, I think, than any other prophet, what it's like. He's, he, it was so hard for him to go to the people and talk about the judgment to come and to rebuke the people and to tell them about their sin. That's not a popular message. Wouldn't it be easier, you know, just to uh, go get a house in the suburbs? You know, get the little white picket fence with the roses over the arbor and, you know, the nice cushy job and, and retire? Wouldn't it be a lot easier? And Jeremiah got to the point when he saw the hardness of the people and he saw what God was going to do and in Lamentations, by the way, the whole book is him weeping about what God did because they didn't listen. At one point, he said, then I said, I will speak no more in his name. Can you imagine that? Jeremiah, they're, they're men, you know, of flesh like you and me. He said, I'm not going to do it anymore. I've had it. I'm going to turn in my prophet's badge. But he went on, he said, but his word was in my picture of a prophet. It's not easy. It's tough. It's hard. It's a rough experience. The, the Word of God is sweet, but when it gets down here, it's bitter. And the life is, is a tough life. Praise God. God. God has the final word. He says it in Hebrews. He lists many of the prophets. talks about one getting sawn asunder, which is probably Isaiah. And he ends with this phrase, of whom the world 
was not worthy. I like that. The world's not worthy of men of God like this. So, God is reminding John here and us of what it's really like to speak for God and, and to live amidst, amidst a people who really generally don't want to hear about it. Don't want to hear about God. Don't want to hear about their sin. Don't tell me about the judgment that's to come. Okay, let's turn back to Ezekiel now. I told you there's a very similar experience. Just to let you know, this is a common experience of the prophets. Ezekiel, chapter 2. It's good for us to realize that, that the prophets are people like us. You know, I, I think uh, we often get images of Charlton Heston with a long white beard, you know, and uh, kind of a stony countenance, unmoved by anything. Um, and yet, when you think about it, when you read about the prophets, you see them, particularly at, at the beginning of their call, their frailty, their weakness, their fear. Remember Moses? It, boy, I don't know how many ways he argued with God to try to get out of his commission. Remember that? You know? Praise God, though, for his uh, sovereignty and, and his encouragement to Moses. Uh, Isaiah, remember, at the very beginning there in chapter 6, you know, he said, woe is me, I'm undone when he had that vision of God. I tell you, that was spoken from the heart. He was aware of just what kind of a man he was. I'm a man of unclean lips, he said. I'm not the kind of guy to go out and speak the word of God, pick somebody else. And we see it in Ezekiel. Six times in the book of Ezekiel, when God gives him a vision, he falls down and faints. And, and every, <clears throat> every time God is faithful, it says, the Spirit of God came upon me and he, and he picked me up, literally stood me up. So you have the frailty of man on one side, which is good, you see. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. And every time when, when, the, when the men are aware of their own weakness and frailty, God is faithful in his strength and strengthen his messenger for the uh, work he has to do. But here in chapter 2, uh, Ezekiel has just finished this incredible vision of the wheels and the wheels within wheels and the, and the uh, faces of the eagle and the man and the bull. And uh, it says in uh, the end of chapter 1, actually, the end of verse 28, So when I saw it, I fell on my face. And I heard a voice of one speaking, and he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak to you. Then the Spirit entered me when he spoke to me and set me on my feet, and I heard him who spoke me. As I said, this happened six times in the book. Now, toward the end, verse 9, Now when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. Then he spread it before me, and there was writing on the inside and on the outside, and written on it, now here's the bitter part, you see, were lamentations and mourning and woe. And, of course, we see it later in the book of Ezekiel as he describes the judgment of God. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate it and it was in my mouth like honey and sweet. It's the word of God. It was like honey and sweet. It's just like John, you see. And he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. And then after some description later in verse 14, so the Spirit lifted me up 
Poor Ezekiel. I don't know if he ever walked on his own two feet. The Spirit is constantly picking him up. And took me away, and I went in what? What does it say there? Bitterness. I went in bitterness. And in the heat of my spirit, he's worked up. The Word of God is, is in him now. He's, he's swallowed it. He's ingested it. And it's a troubling message, but it must be spoken. And so God's prophet is going to go out and speak the Word. And as I said, six times we see this experience of Ezekiel. Uh, Daniel, later, uh, many times, fell down. One time he was sick, as I said, for many days. Okay, that's... Uh, a, a picture, I think, of what chapter 10 is talking about there in Revelation. I think it's, it's really a picture to John and to us of what it's like to be a prophet. And it's a reminder to us of what it was like for John to see these things and to hear these things. It wasn't like in the third row of the theater with popcorn. It was a, a physically, emotionally draining experience for him. But God wants to speak to us and he speaks through people. And so he spoke through uh, John the, the uh, Apostle, John the Prophet. Okay, now in the remaining time, as I said, I really wanted to look at some of the Old Testament passages that coincide with the book of Revelation. We've gone through Revelation, and a few times we've looked back at parallel passages in the Old Testament. But generally, we've, we've, we've kept a Revelation. So I wanted to look at just one passage to parallel last uh, week's message. Remember the fifth and sixth trumpets, the locusts. Who can forget that, right? And those weren't any ordinary locusts, remember. And then the the uh, horsemen and the horses with the fire coming out of the mouth. Remember that? That was the sixth. And in fact, the last three trumpets are called the three woes. Remember that? After the fifth trumpet, he said the first woe is past. There are still two more to come. They're particularly uh, terrible judgments. Partially because they, they touched people individually. Like the, the pains of for five months, remember, from the, the sting of the locusts. And then, of course, the, the sixth trumpet, a third of mankind uh, being killed. And then the seventh trumpet is the third woe because it appears to contain all the judgments of the bowls. So, bang, 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 the last three trumpets, probably the worst of all. Right toward the end, as, as the Lord Jesus is stomping out that wine press, He's getting down to the, just the last few dregs, so to speak. Okay, Joel. The book of Joel. Are you there? Is everybody? After the major prophets, the first four major prophets, and the rest are called minor prophets. God didn't do that. Men decided to do that. They called them minor because they wrote shorter books. But their message wasn't any less than Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jeremiah Ezekiel, or Daniel. It goes Hosea and then Joel. A lot of the uh, book of Joel, particularly the first part, really seems to coincide with the fifth trumpet that we saw, the locusts. Now, uh, many uh, men think that the theme of Joel could be summarized as the day of the Lord. And that's, that's a good summary. It, that phrase appears five times in this book. And just about every time he says it, it says something like, the day of the Lord is coming. It's a great and terrible day. And it, and it parallels, of course, Revelation, the, the tribulation. But uh, in the book of Joel, God talks about locusts. Verse uh, 4, chapter 1. 
What the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. Remember, locusts are grasshoppers. We talked about those guys last week. I read some first-hand accounts of what it's like to uh, live through a plague of locusts and the devastation. And that's what God is saying here. There are like three kinds in this particular uh, judgment. And the first kind comes through and, and eats just about everything. And if he leaves anything, there's another kind of locust comes through and eats just about everything of that. And if there's anything left, there's a third kind that comes through until everything is gone. It's a complete judgment. But now, as often is in the case in the prophets, God uh, often speaks about something that's going to happen soon. And he's going to talk about something that's going to happen a lot, lot later. Double fulfillment. And it's clear in the book of Joel that God is talking more than just about a single locust plague that's going to come on the nation of Israel. In fact, the use of the day of the Lord would indicate that to us, that he's really also talking about the end times. And if you look here in chapter 2, listen to this description and imagine it talking about this plague of locusts that God is going to send. Remember the fifth trumpet from last time. Uh, verse 2, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. Remember the darkness that came out of the pit when they first came out. Remember the descriptions of the plagues when literally the sky was darkened by the swarms, by the clouds of locusts. Now he says, and here's, here's where... Uh, the prophets, it says in Peter, they struggled to look at the things they'd just written to understand what they'd written, and they couldn't. Um, that's a very loose paraphrase. But he's going to say, a people come. But it's clear he's talking about the locusts. A people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will ever be any such after them. Now, that's a clue. These aren't just ordinary locusts. Even for many successive generations... And look, a fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. You got the picture. In front of them, verdant green, you know, fields, trees, and so on. And as they move through behind them, a moonscape, so to speak. Total destruction. And this... Uh, Sounds like a description right out of Revelation chapter 9 that we looked last week. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. Remember that? And like swift steeds, so they run with a noise like chariots. Over mountaintops they leap, like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. Now these next several verses are a graphic picture of the fact that the locusts are going to move through and that nothing is going to stop them. They know no fear. They don't break ranks. When they try to be destroyed, they just keep right on going. And here's another uh, pointer that these are no ordinary locusts. Look at verse 6. Before them, the people writhe in pain. Now, they don't do that with ordinary locusts. Locusts don't hurt people. Remember that? They're just grasshoppers. Grasshoppers don't bite. How many of you kids have ever picked up a grasshopper? Yeah, look at that. See that? Did he bite you? No. Grasshoppers don't bite. But remember, the, the locusts that God has designed specially for that moment in the book of Revelation, they sting like a scorpion. Remember that? God uses them to 
judge people. So these are more than just your ordinary locusts. They're a, they're a special species that God has reserved right now. They're in the, as it says in the, the newer translation, the bottomless pit, waiting to be unleashed. It's a species you're not going to find in your insect book. Before them, the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color. Now, listen to this. It, it, you can almost see them crawling all everywhere, and there's no stopping them. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation, and they do not break ranks. They do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column, and when they lunge between the weapons, they are not, they are not cut down. Literally, um, in spite of their losses, they're not stopped. That's the idea. That's scary, isn't it? I mean, think of an enemy that keeps coming and coming, and no matter what you do to him, he just keeps coming. That's what God is saying here. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. Remember the description of a locust plague? It was exactly like that. Remember the ladies talked about shoveling them out by the hands full out of the engine of her car. If there's a crack somewhere, they find it. And in a plague, they just they get in. You can't keep them out. Now, that's bad enough when they're just regular old, nice, cute little grasshoppers. But when these guys can sting and it hurts for five months, ugh, you don't want to be there. God is saying you're not going to be able to get away from this. There's no hiding when I send these locusts out. Verse 10, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army. It's, it's him leading them, you see. He's commanding them. For his camp is very great, for strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord, there's that phrase, is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Now, there is, in God's own word, a little commentary on one of the trumpets, you see. Here's lying, lying here, right in the Bible. And there are passages like this all over the Old Testament that correspond, and we've talked about them sometimes, but they correspond to the book of Revelation. We've gone far enough now. I really encourage you, Sit down sometime. Go through Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah, Zechariah. We're going to look at that in a minute. And, and see how many places you'll notice. You know, this parallels that, that thing we looked at in Revelation. The Word of God is true. And he said it uh, in some cases here a thousand years ago. And he hasn't changed it to 90 AD in Revelation. He's still saying the same thing. Okay, well, we're going to finish here with uh, something in Zechariah. We've been talking about the judgment of God for uh, now, the, uh, now in this session, we've been going three weeks straight. And it's heavy stuff, isn't it? So I thought we'd look at a, another passage that, that talks about the thing that God is going to accomplish in the nation of Israel in that time. It's a beautiful picture. You see the phrase, in that day, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine times in these two chapters. We're just going to run through them. And again, it's talking about the day of the Lord. And particularly, it's emphasizing the last part of the Great Tribulation when the Lord Jesus is about to come. And here he's focusing on the fact that God has accomplished with this nation of Israel what he wanted to do at the very outset. And that is to to get them to come to him, and in particular, to recognize 
the Messiah when he came. And that's going to happen. Uh, he begins in uh, chapter 12, verse 1, The bird of the word of the Lord against Israel, thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Notice how God is constantly reminding us, by the way, of the fact that he created things. I just want to remind you again. He uh, talks about judgment that's going to come. And uh, then in verse 10, this is the section I want to focus on. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. We'll, we'll look at that and we're going to continue. Did you notice anything uh, interesting about the grammar in that? We've done this many times. Remember, pay attention to the grammar, particularly when it doesn't make sense. God does it for a purpose. Let's look at it. They will look on me whom they have pierced. You see that? Who's speaking here? Jesus? Well, this is Zechariah. It's written about 400 years before Christ. It's Jehovah. It's, it's God. Right? Incredible. They will look on me whom they have pierced. And then he says it in the per third person. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. Really, you have the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ here. Jehovah God, they will look on me whom they have pierced. But then the plurality of the Godhead. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an, for an only son. We can't imagine what that's going to be like. Listen to this. In that day there should be such a great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning at Hadad, Rimmon, in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and so on. And he goes through many groups of families. And if you look at them, he really talks about uh, the aristocracy, the ruling class. He talks about the religious leaders. And then he talks about the, just the ordinary people. He's talking about everybody. And he's stressing the fact that this is going to be this, this tremendous mourning that's going to take place in the nation of Israel. Can you imagine in the, in the tribulation, he says in Romans, all Israel shall be saved. The Jews in Israel are going to recognize, by and large, that the Lord Jesus Christ, whom they crucified, was the Messiah, and not only that, was indeed their God who had come in the flesh. And they crucified him. Can you imagine that what the impact that's going to have as that dawns on them? As they realize that, what a morning is going to set in. But he goes on, 13, verse 1, In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Now, he's not uh, saying so much that the cross is going to happen then, but that that's when... The fountain is really going to bubble over and people are going to be cleansed from their sins in the nation of Israel is during the tribulation. The Lord Jesus died around 30 A.D. But at that time when he came, he was rejected. He came to his own and his own received him not. Imagine, the nation of Israel wanted nothing to do with him. But in that day, the day of the Lord, remember, and particularly we're talking about the, the tribulation here, 
Jews are going to come literally by the, by the thousands to Christ and be saved. And the, and the fountain, so to speak, of the cross, the blood of Christ, is going to cleanse them from their sins. Uh, verses 2 through 6, you can read that at your leisure, but it's talking about a prophet and many people like to bend over backwards and say that's talking about the Lord Jesus. It's a prophecy of the Lord Jesus. Because uh, it says, verse 6, what are these wounds in your hands? And he says, those which, with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Wouldn't that be a great prophecy of, of the Lord Jesus and his crucifixion wounds? I'm not laying a trap. Come on, be honest. It would, wouldn't it? But it's not. It's talking about a false prophet. In fact, uh, 2 through 6 are talking about a false prophet there. And, and in, the, in the end times, what God is saying is there's not going to be any more false prophets. I'm going to do away with them. That's what he says there. But then he picks up the theme again in verse 7 of the Lord Jesus and says this, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones, and it shall come to pass in all, all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die. Now, who's the shepherd? That's right. Thank you, Noah. Somebody's bold enough to volunteer an answer. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. This verse, in fact, is quoted in the New Testament, isn't it? It's quoted in Matthew and Mark right at the time of the crucifixion. And listen, it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. In those chapters, God says it this way, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. It's called Holy Spirit hermeneutics. He takes this verse and summarizes the first part about the awakening of the sword and simply says, I will strike the shepherd. Do you get the, the impact of what God is saying there? He's, he's saying that it's God himself who strikes the shepherd. Sounds like Isaiah 53. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. It pleased the Lord to crush him. Do you, do you appreciate the exactness of the word of God here? You want some more uh, insight into the exactness? He stops in his quote in Matthew and Mark with, and the sheep will be scattered. And applying that to the scattering of the disciples when the Lord Jesus was crucified. Why does he stop there? Because the next part is talking about the end times. Then I will turn my hands against the little ones. Two-thirds shall be cut off and so on. And he's clearly talking about the day of the Lord and the great tribulation. God is so precise. In fact, back in verse 10, we looked at that in, uh, in chapter 12. Look at that real quick. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Now, if you look at the quotation in John, the quotation stops there. In talking about the cross. At that point... The Jews looked on him whom they had pierced, didn't they? Did they mourn for him? No, they didn't. You see, that's going to come later. So God stops the quote right there. We see this over and over again in the prophecies in the Old Testament. When God quotes it applying in the New Testament, he stops right where the New Testament fulfillment ends and leaves out the part that's going to be fulfilled in the tribulation or in the second coming of the Lord. Anyway, the good news at the end of verse 9, when it's all said and done, 
They will call in my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. Isn't that wonderful? After all the failures of that nation in turning their back on God in idolatry and to this day their hearts are hardened, what a wonderful thing that God is going to be triumphant after all and they're going to be trophies of His grace and turn to Christ in that day. Okay, that was a quick uh, trip through just two passages in the Old Testament. I hope for some of you it might have whetted your appetites to just read through. Uh, pick, a small, pick a minor prophet if you want. You know, Zechariah is a fun one because of all the visions. Your head will be spinning by the time you get done with that one. Um, and, but as you read it, think about Revelation and the things we've seen. And notice how many parallels you'll see with the things in the book of Revelation. It's the Word of God and it's completely trustworthy. Let's pray. Lord, we agree with the psalmist, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And as we read your word, we see the truth of it. We see the great things that you have done and the great things you will do. Lord, we fall on our knees and worship. And we think about that day that will come. And for us that know you, Lord, we just pray that you'll hasten the day. Oh, how we long to be with you. How, how we long to see the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. How we long to see him take his rightful place and rule over this earth. Lord, we pray that it would be soon. Lord, we pray for anyone here who's not ready for that day. We pray there'd be no one here who would be left behind when Jesus comes to take his own to himself. Lord, we ask it in his name. Amen.